0: Exocast.
1: Exocast.
0: <laughs> Exocast. Exocast.
2: Exocast. 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 Hello, and welcome my friends. You're listening to Exocast, the only podcast that takes you outside the solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm still Andrew Rushby, and I'm grateful to be joined, as always, by the good doctors Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. Well, do we have an episode for you today? Uh, recording was actually slightly delayed so that we could process the big news from yesterday, July 12th when the first images from JWST were released. And I'm sure we're all, we're all giddy here in the studio, I know I am, and I don't even know where to begin with the images, so I'm not going to begin. I'm going to let Hannah begin because she knows much more about it than me and I'm sure she's incredibly excited to share her insights. So Hannah, tell us about JWST.
0: Well, we got the first showcase of the science that we're going to see over the next two, three, four decades. Absolutely insane, right? So what we saw was on Monday night, there was a first release uh, by the president of the United States of the deep field image that, that came out. So this is looking uh, a 12 and a half hour exposure. So they pointed at a single part of the sky and... This part of the sky was the equivalent to a grain of sand at arm's length from you. So it's an absolutely minuscule part of the sky for 12 and a half hours and this was looking at a galaxy cluster and in particular this cluster is a lensing cluster and that means that there are galaxies behind it that are would be typically obscured by it but because of Einstein's gravity this beautiful theory of gravity means that the light from those galaxies is actually being bent around this mass of these nearby clusters. So we can actually see in that image these big stripy parts, and those stripy parts are other galaxies in the background, even deeper in the universe. So this 12 and a half hour exposure, you can see the equivalent of the Hubble Space Telescope image, and that took 10 and a half days. So even with just that number, you can see the equivalence there, just the improvement that we're making. But if you look at those images, you can also see how sharp the JWST images are. Uh, And one of the things that really stands out to me is you can immediately tell a JWST image by how many spikes of light there are (laughs) around each of the stars. So the nearby stars in that image, so there's some foreground stars which are in our own Milky Way that are actually in the way for the galaxy astronomers. They hate them, they they wanna remove those. But in those, uh, those stars, you can see six spikes and these look like beautiful snowflakes if you look even closer. And that's because of the hexagon structure of the mirrors on JWST, which causes what we call these diffraction spikes, the way the light is is bent around as it travels through. From the primary mirror, which is all these hexagons, to the secondary mirror, which is this nice actual spherical mirror, uh, and then into the into the telescope instruments itself. So that causes these six spikes compared to the Hubble's four spikes. So you can immediately tell you've got a JWST image there for you. But that was just the beginning. It was a, a little glimpse it was a little anticlimactic i'm not gonna lie it was an hour and a half late and it was it was a, so
1: underwhelming yeah
0: it, it was very the image was amazing but it was very political so yes. really the place you needed to be was on the internet looking at the nasa website where you could get the the full image and the beautiful picture because you you really couldn't see it on the press release unfortunately yeah. but if you go look at the nasa website now for the first images from jwst you can scroll through the the library and Yesterday we got the full shebang. We got the full showcase, and that included some obviously beautiful free color images. We got a, a dead star, so this is a white dwarf with a planetary nebula around it, and that doesn't mean planets. That means that for everyone who doesn't it's so do confusing. That. <laughs> it was named a. It was named a very long time yeah. ago, but it's the it's the ejected atmosphere of the the star after it died, and. The structures that you can see in it are amazing. And one of the really nice things about the image they released of the Southern Ring Nebula, is what it's called, is that they released it in two different instruments. They released it in the near-cam instrument, in the kind of near IR, the near-infrared, so around uh, one to two microns. And they released it in the MIRI instrument, the mid-infrared instrument on JWST, which looks beyond five microns. So they released about an eight-micron image. So you can see the, the difference between what the telescope can do at either end of its spectrum. And I think that was a really nice showcase of the, the scope that it covers. Uh, we then got the Stefan's Quintet, which is five galaxies merging together we have hubble and spitzer images of this quintet you can also get some amazing images of it from the ground if you're an amateur astrophotographer you can get some really beautiful images of this quintet of galaxies It's a popular point in shoot destination for many astrophotographers
2: and jwst well,
0: the JWST image was spectacular. You could see how these galaxies were interacting with each other. You could see those stars being ripped from one galaxy and taken by another and just the interactions between them so we're going to learn a lot from those images you might
2: mention this hannah but the, the sense i got was depth right of a, of a great depth right. like a, into the image a texture that you could really get a, a, a true scale of that depth that maybe isn't there with with some of the other you know hubble images i
1: feel like we're looking at the hubble images it's a little bit kind of like yeah you don't get that um that contrast in the dust Right, and I think that's the difference is that you get this extra resolution with James Webb, and the contrast of the different kind of light levels coming from the dust gives you this amazing texture. Yeah, especially uh, I think you're about to talk about it, but the, the Carina's Nebula,
0: oh is, yeah, is incredible. As like, soon as we saw this image, our faces just lit up. It is the most beautiful background <laughs> piece of art I think I've ever seen, and it is art, and it's kind of crazy. Yeah. The structural contrast that you just, it's so hard to imagine being real. This is something that is physically out there in the universe. That perfectly crisp edge of dust is hundreds, thousands of light years across. It's huge. The This is, you can't imagine it. You can't imagine the scale of this image and and what it's showing. And I think that the beauty of it is that actually we're seeing so much more physics in there. We're seeing stars in the background. We're seeing through this dust in some places and not in others. And, And this comes down to the wavelength of light that you're using. So the further you go into the infrared, the more you'll be able to see through that dust. And the JWST instruments will allow us to do that, taking those images at different wavelengths. So there's so much more to be done with all of these. But this is an exoplanet podcast, so I would like to talk about the spectrum because what is brilliant is that they decided to showcase something that is not conceptually easy. They decided that in their public showcase of what this telescope could do, it was important that they included an exoplanet. And that the way they were going to do that wasn't with a directly imaged planet so you could see this like dot of light. They did it with a spectrum, a transmission spectrum of a wasp planet as well. And wasp planets are just brilliant targets for follow up. You've heard us talk about them on the show many, many times if you've you've been with us before. They don't do that well in Exocup for some reason, but they might do now. They might do now. Well, yeah. They're just absolutely brilliant follow-up targets, um, and that's because they're they're generally fairly nearby, they're bright, uh, and they tend to have rather large planets around them. And the planet that they showcased was WASP ninety six B, and it is as it was uh, quoted earlier this week at the Royal Astronomical Society's National Astronomy Meeting, where myself and Hugh are right now in the
1: same room for once.
0: In the same room, it's brilliant. <laughs> As it was quoted, it is a very typical hot Jupiter. So it is Jupiter sized world orbiting incredibly close to its star. Its uh, year is just over three days, so it it is very hot. It's around 1500 Kelvin. And that means we can get a really great spectrum because it's got a lot of atmosphere for that light to shine through. Um, And what you're seeing from this spectrum is from the nearest instrument. This is one of the hardest instruments that we will be using on JWST to measure the spectra. This is not an easy instrument to use. It has an interesting diffraction pattern for its light. It creates a double-peaked kind of cat-like shape with its little ears as it spreads the light out across the detector. And not only that, it creates a banana shape as well. So you've got a lot of instrument effects that you've got to deal with to get out the spectrum.
2: And that's because this is a slitless spectrograph, right? Hannah, I went down a little rabbit hole with, with reading about that when i when i was looking at the results
0: but it's not just the slitness uh nature that creates this there's a lot of light path uh information in there that they have to use and they have to kind of deal with to create this spectrum so it's a combination of a lot of different effects which make this an insanely difficult measurement that they have decided to use and i think that that is really kind of brilliant that they've gone you know what we're going to try and teach people what we can do with this what's the hardest thing we can do But the key is if you compare this to the Hubble Space Telescope spectrum that we've already got of this planet. So we've looked at this planet for the last, uh, I'd say, uh, three, four, no, four, five years now. It's been longer than I think. Every (laughs) single time I think about time, it's wrong. The precision that we're getting, so the size of the error bars, the shape of the features is the same. The size of the error bars is tiny compared to what we've done before. So what we're seeing here is the bumps and wiggles, those kind of ups and downs. The ups are where you're seeing water absorbing light from the star before it reaches us, so blocking it out from us, uh, and then in the troughs in between. So we've got these four water absorption peaks in that spectrum, which help confirm the measurements that we've made with the Hubble Space Telescope. And one of the fun things immediately after, uh, I'm on a couple of Slack channels, one in particular was the early release science James Webb team, so the JWST the release science team, uh, we're going to be looking at data uh, over the next month uh, intensely to try and understand all of these instruments. And immediately they started going, right, what is this showing us? Like, pull this down, let's measure it, let's run some models, let's see what's happening. So they have been incredibly active ever since. I think it's very, very hard to stop the exoplanet community <laughs> uh, from running away with things and ideas. That's
2: interesting, Hannah, because I thought that Maybe these observations were driven by that that team, actually. I thought these were the first early release observations coming out. This is just a, a, a kind of benchmark, hallmark image. OK, my, my bad on yeah, that. Yeah,
0: so this isn't this isn't part of the early release science team. So we're okay. going to be looking at WASP-39B. And we'll be looking at that with SOS, this instrument, nearest and three other instrument modes as well. So we have our work cut out for us. This is a commissioning target that they showed us yesterday. And the commissioning target really just allowed them to test the instrument. And again, like we've seen yesterday, showcase what this telescope can do. And I think one of the key things that we saw with absolutely everything is that this is just the start. And it's going to get better from here. Can you believe it? It's genuinely going to get better from here. That was not the deepest field image that we're going to be getting. It was not the widest image we're going to be getting. We're going to be getting deeper and bigger images of galaxy clusters and galaxies throughout the universe. We're going to be looking back at the first stars. We're going to be getting spectra in the first two years alone of over 80 planets. 80 individual planets are going to be measured with the telescope in a few years. That's kind of crazy. And I don't even know where they're going to begin with the nebulae because they're gorgeous. I want to see the horsehead <laughs> nebula from this telescope. I want to see what that looks like. To be yeah.
2: fair, when the Carino popped up, I immediately shouted, is that the horsehead nebula? Because, you know, I, that was the one I was kind of hoping hoping <laughs> to see. Uh, my bad. But am I correct, Hannah, this is like five days worth of observations in total, These la- these last two days worth of images, right? just, as you say, scratching the surface in terms of time uh, that we've we've had on it.
0: If you just add up all of the time that they use to get these images, it's a pittance, absolute pittance, compared to, to what we're going to be seeing coming out from the scientific community. And... One of the other things that I think is really, really key is just the number of people that it took to get to this point, to get to yesterday, to get to this press release, to get to all of these images. Over 20,000 people have worked from the original design of this telescope through to building it itself, commissioning it, working on the press releases, working on the the data here, and people kind of proposing for observations, working out those phase twos, working out the scheduling. It is... and massive effort that is run across you know the original design and build was done across 14 countries like it's it's a huge huge endeavor and it will represent a paradigm shift there will be a time before JWST and a time after it that is this is a marked day in astronomy
2: and let's not forget that everything went in terms of the commissioning incredibly well like this is optimal Right?
0: They had to deal with some things. There are some really, really smart people who were working around the clock, genuinely around the clock in shifts to fix problems that came up, understanding what was happening and things. You can see, actually, if you look at the raw data for this WASP-96B spectrum, one of the segments of the mirrors moved during the observation. Yeah. Just a single and you can one. See, you can very
2: clearly see it on the curve, right? You
0: yeah. can clearly see it. And they're like, why is it moving? The beauty of the commissioning is that they were able to use multiple instruments at the same time to go, it's moving and it physically changed the PSF. They could see exactly how it changed the PSF, how it changed the shape of those spikes and, and patterns of the star itself and use that to go, we should probably move that back. So it was it's it's a really fascinating and um, challenge that they've come to.
1: I thought that was Happy 14 because they also <laughs> that if you if you check out the commissioning notes there are two extra exoplanets yes, in there. Yes, there are. There are L1982 wasn't it? Yep. An M dwarf found by Tess. I know it as TOI 125. Yeah. And there is uh, Happy 14. Mm-hmm. And they don't show a spectra of these. They only show uh, the, the, the white light curves. Yeah. And it's the Happy 14 light curve with this okay. jump. And
2: I was squinting at I think David sings presentation on that was retweeted on Twitter or something or someone's presentation that I was squinting to try and see any of that any of that data so I'm sure that's out there somewhere
0: yeah so this mirror segment movement is not unique they are saying that it is the the number of times it's doing it is reducing with time
1: that's Good, I guess.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But this is a complicated telescope. There are things that we're going to have to deal with that we haven't dealt with before. And I think that's the amazing thing from this commissioning. And you can find a, what, 96-page article detailing lots of different things, including gorgeous images of Jupiter and its rings in the infrared with JWST, in that they're talking about all of the little systematics So we've talked about before on the show. And if you've heard me talking about anything, most of our job is is removing instrument systematics. And this telescope's pointing is so precise, we really don't have to do a humongous amount. Yeah.
1: Compared to Hubble, definitely. <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: Compared to TESS, if you put the light curve that we got, and so if you go on the NASA website, you can see both the spectrum of WASP-96 and its light curve. Compare that to the TESS light curve of WASP-96. Compare that to the WASP oh, yeah. light curve of WASP-96. We're talking about
1: 65 times bigger, the mirror, right, <laughs> than TESS's
2: aperture, so... It's
0: absolutely beautiful. <laughs> is this going to be
2: exocast now? Just, just knocking other telescopes. Oh, TESS this. Oh, Hubble that. I mean, we still love them. Let's not get it wrong. But... They
0: are useful for many different things, and that's As the beauty say, of it. Shift. They all have to work together. This is not a this one trumps all so this is the only thing we should use this is also going to be working with the hubble space telescope so we still need to be using the data from the hubble space telescope to put some of this in context and that's the the amazing thing that we saw with all of the other color images is that the first thing people did was compare it to the hubble space telescope images and i've been talking with some of our deep galaxies and distant galaxy people here who wanted that deep field the first thing they did was like Hubble didn't see this galaxy, we're seeing it here. That tells us something immediately. This is a more distant galaxy. The redness of those galaxies tells us something immediately. So there is just a humongous amount of information that we can get from this.
2: I think I saw someone on Twitter say that there might be 100 papers in that first deep-field image potentially hidden away down the line, which I could believe.
1: Yeah. I'm sure we'll have the first paper by the end of the week. (laughs) Uh, But on that note of comparing, so, so... Doing the rounds, obviously, before the James Webb release of this WASP-96 spectrum was the Hubble spectrum. And it revealed this really quite strong water feature, and the the ground-based data showed a, a peak in the for the sodium and, and, and potassium and, and, and a clear atmosphere. But what happened with this James Webb image is, at least in terms of what I've heard, is that its lower the features are less clear than we expected.
0: Is that true? So the amplitude of the features as presented are less than were expected from the Hubble data.
1: Yeah.
0: However, there have been many, many different warnings uh, from Space Telescope and from many other people who were working on this data is this is not science ready data not a single one of the images we saw yesterday this spectrum is not a science ready spectrum so they shouldn't be used for scientific investigations if you want to work on this if you want to know exactly what we can get out of it you have to go back to the data that's in the archive and i think that's a really important fact that what they were trying to do yesterday and they succeeded in doing beautifully is showcasing what this telescope can do and giving an idea to the public what science will be done and what they should be expecting to see in the, the coming decades. And I think that that's really the key. That's why they wanted to put an exoplanet spectrum in there. It wasn't to go, here's your first science ready data. We shouldn't expect to see anything kind of scientifically valid from this uh, right from the beginning. We were having fun with it the other day, putting models to it and going, what what can we do? But we really need to go back to the raw data and re-reduce this. And honestly, talking with everybody, it's going to get better than this. now it might be that this is more muted and these water features are more muted. I predicted this a while ago, that we would see these kind of muted features throughout the infrared. And we're gonna use that to measure these cloud features in the atmosphere. So I I do think that it is what we expected, if I'm honest with you. And the amplitude is kind of, it does kind of match the the Hubble ones a bit better than people kind of were throwing out on Twitter. If I'm honest, it's just the models themselves were allowed more leeway in the Hubble data because the error bars were so much larger.
1: And I guess the Hubble data was a a stack of multiple transits, whereas this is a single transit, right? So this is also proof that once you're getting multiple transits with, with James Webb, you're going to do so much better.
0: Oh, we're going to do some amazing stuff with multiple transits. Uh, Most of our multiple transit observations will be happening with our smaller planets. So pushing down to even more precise data and the real key that we need to learn from all of these data sets that are coming out right now. So they've released all of the commissioning data sets. That includes that happy uh, 14 data set which is a high gravity planet so we don't expect features but we'll see this planet which we expected huge absorption features and we do see multiple absorption features there which is exciting and that small planet so we can really test the limits of each of these instruments and how precise we can expect to measure things in the future but i I do think that you know this is a showcase uh, of what is yet to come this is really just a very kind of tip of the iceberg i suppose is the closest analogy so i think uh, eyeballing the error bars was about a couple hundred parts per million uh, in the
2: like kind of one micron range <laughs> which looked pretty good even less
0: it's less than it's that. Even less than yeah. That. Okay. yeah okay yeah yeah it's the even scale less scale wasn't that.
2: great but yeah it didn't look much especially like i say in that kind of one micron uh, near infrared range look, looked nice
0: yeah they definitely didn't want you to use these as science ready images so do not trust the scale on mm-hmm. the side there too closely oh, it's, it's,
2: natural right i want i wanted to see what the uncertainty was what the aeropause oh
0: were, yeah was. no we were natural. all doing it i'm just warning warning uh <laughs> we're gonna see some more from this planet um we're gonna see more from this instrument and we're gonna see more from this telescope and
2: actually maybe that's a good uh, a good segue like um for folks listening at home that might not be as involved in the community what might be the rate at which we will start seeing more whether it's from the galactic folks yeah. or from the exoplanet are we going to see images like this every week every month uh, a couple of times a year
0: so i think you know reasonably the telescope's doing so much stuff i i would be surprised if we didn't see just a flurry of yeah. things every month even every every week as we get into the point where we're gonna be busy in the news. As we get to the point where we can analyze the data really quickly, I think there will be every, you know, few months, every year, a big kind of story that gets picked up by the national press. And I think that's the difference. Right. This was a national story. It was absolutely everywhere it was on Times Square. You saw a planetary spectrum on the screens all around Times Square in New York City. That's Never thought brilliant. I'd see <laughs> that's beautiful. It and is. I I just yeah. that's really hard to do. Getting to such a wide audience is so important. Getting them to listen and understand and want to know more that's fantastic because that just facilitates more interaction in the future. And the amount of science that's going to be done with this, the, the plans that are already in place for the next couple of years, we should expect to see so much more of that. And I, I hope that interaction continues.
2: Admittedly, my you know friends who aren't uh, that involved in, in in science were excited about the images, but all of them didn't really notice the exoplanet spectrum. When uh, That's the one I wanted to talk about. And they're like, oh, the galaxies. Oh, you know, did you see the images? Um, I was like, well, yeah, but what about the spectrum? And they're like, oh, yeah. It was there. I must say, Nicole Colon did a great job uh, of explaining that and trying to keep her enthusiasm in check. I don't think I would have done it. So she did a fantastic job of explaining oh, that. Oh, yeah.
0: She's absolutely brilliant. I'm really glad we had that ambassador on, on the screen for, for everybody because she knows her stuff yeah, and she absolutely. was able to really nicely show show what was what was going on and, and what we should be looking for in this spectrum. So it was really great to have that representation as well.
2: Let's get her on the show. Yeah. We really should. (laughs) I think we all know Nicole, don't we? So yeah, we should have her.
0: ExoCast. So, it's not the only news. We do have an obligation to our listeners to present some of the things on archive that they didn't feel like reading because they were just tied up in in jwst hype so andrew what have you got for us this week in terms of a paper that you want to present for everybody yes
2: i do have a summary of course you know the the big news was jwst and it all seems to pale somewhat into in, in comparison but this is at least relevant uh, you know relevant we're talking about atmospheres here this is a paper that appeared in nature astro this week uh, sorry this month it's called potential long-term habitable conditions on planets with Primary. Primordial uh, hydrogen helium atmospheres, and it's led by Marit Mellose. Apologies, Marit, if I've mispronounced your surname there, uh, from the University of Bern and Zurich in Switzerland. So this paper touches on the possibility of these thick hydrogen helium primordial atmospheres maintaining temperatures warm enough to keep water liquid through collision-induced absorption, facilitated by these, you know, kind of high surface pressures on these much larger worlds. We're talking, you know, super or or maybe above. The idea is if physical processes can keep the planet, you know, warm enough for liquid water, what does that mean for potential habitability is the question. Profit in the paper that no one else has really considered before because... Well, for reasons that will become obvious. So this is a modeling a theory study, and if you're interested in the in the uh, the, the debate between you know theory and, and observations, make sure to check out Exocast sixty one B this month, where we have a pretty in depth discussion slash debate about theory and observation. And this is very much on the modeling theory side. There's some simulated planets here of a range of sizes between about one and ten Earth masses, with possible core and envelopes, that's the core of the planet and envelope of the primordial gases that have also scaled. And we're talking about single star type here sun-like stars g dwarf so keep that in mind. So the authors found that a hydrogen helium envelope with a mass approximately twice that of the primordial Earth, so that's about uh, 10 to the minus 4 Earth masses or so, uh, is sufficient for a terrestrial or super-Earth planet to maintain temperate surface conditions. i got that there in a quote. But this can, can vary as a function of orbital separation. The further away you are, the thicker the atmosphere, the, the closer you are, the, 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 um, the less uh, thick your atmosphere would have to be. Uh, they also find that planets with these small envelope masses have liquid water conditions, and again, in a quote there, relatively early, while planets with more massive envelopes reach liquid water conditions later in their evolution. So this is an entirely new finding. Previous authors, including uh, Ray Pierre-Humbert from Oxford, have investigated the possibility of these free-floating unbound or, or rogue planets with distended hydrogen-helium atmospheres, maintaining some sort of, uh, of heat engine through collision, uh, collision-induced collision absorption. And we've also actually recently discussed so-called hycean worlds. You know, remember this from a few exocasts ago. These are ocean planets with apparently... Oh we agreed never to say that word. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we kind of wiped that one. <laughs> okay, we're... Uh, Okay, right. So we discussed potential (laughs) ocean planets with thick hydrogen helium atmospheres on the news. Um, And actually, you know, this, this paper has some insights to share on that result as well. So I guess in total, maybe what these papers are revealing to us that liquid water might have a wider phase space in the planetary context that was once thought as a potential positive. Yeah. Now, what this study does is it adds atmospheric escape to the picture, which we know is very important, Um, important for balancing the thermodynamics, mass mass balance of the atmosphere, and just being physically representative of what atmospheres do. You know, it's not going to be a proper model if it's not including that. We've talked about atmospheric loss a lot on the show, but it's a a process or, you know, any range of physical or photochemical processes uh, that, you know, it's this key star-planet interaction that drives atmospheric evolution. And this loss can be thermal, i.e., when, uh, you know, a, a molecule is heated to such a such a degree that attains escape velocity and kind of leaves the planet, or non-thermal through photochemical or or solar wind kind of sputtering uh, collision uh, uh, issues. So in this paper, we're looking at Gene's escape, the classic thermal escape mechanism, and found uh, to be relatively ineffective at driving uh, atmospheric loss because you need really high temperatures at the exobase, which doesn't really happen on these kind of planets. But hydrodynamic escape from the extreme ultraviolet and high pressures can reduce or in some cases apparently completely evaporate the envelope of some planets with no long-term liquid water-stable conditions reported possible on planets with primordial atmospheres within two astronomical units. So this is interesting because uh, it seems to suggest that pressures required for liquid water surface stability between one and two are too low to be resistant against atmospheric escape, which might complicate the picture for the planets that shall not be named, i.e. those ocean planets. A summary, I guess, of the finding from this paper is that planets with cores more massive than about five Earth masses can have, and I quote, liquid water conditions, lasting over 50 billion years for envelopes with about 20 times that of the Earth's primordial hydrogen helium atmosphere. The longest duration for liquid water they found was about 84 billion years with a planet that was 10 times Earth mass's core and about 20 times the envelope. Now, I guess the question is, are these combinations of core envelope and, and mass sizes consistent or physical for what we might expect from theory or observations? I don't think that was entirely clear. But those seem to be the excellent phase space in this particular model for where things go, go well. So the authors claim that habitable conditions here, yeah, and I've quoted that because it's just purely a, a, temperature, uh, a temperature limit below about 400k, between 300 and 400k, um, underneath or, or in this primordial atmosphere might be long-lived. But it does suggest, I guess, that the, you don't may, maybe need this negative stabilizing climate feedback and hysteresis loops that I like talking about. Maybe you can keep you know, the atmosphere warm enough just with CIA uh, alone. But you know what? In in reality, I'm really not sure what what this would look like, right? When we're talking about a thousand bar atmosphere, likely limited photons at the bottom. What type of biosphere, mm-hmm. what type of habitability would we really be discussing here? And the authors do touch on this. They they propose maybe a chemoautotrophic biosphere, uh, perhaps similar to a deep sea hydrothermal vent, or maybe the methanogenic archaean biosphere that we would have had in the very early history of the Earth. So this would be using some of that abundant hydrogen and would need a little bit of CO two to produce methane. But now of course this brings me on to the the big issue here which is atmospheric evolution right the earth inner solar system planets um for example have have not retained their, their primary primordial atmospheres and there's really no reason to think that other planets will maintain the same uh, abundance with no changes in metallicity uh, at all uh, especially of course if
1: i guess neptune has though right so this is right. the issue right okay a mini neptune halfway between earth and neptune is is Maybe going re- to maintain
2: it at some point. Okay, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. Um, I guess my next statement, or what I really should have caveated with that, would be especially if there's a biosphere, right? Which is what was what was suggested here.
0: Sure, but that that is also requiring there to be some kind of bottom where yes. a hydrothermal vent can escape from. That's like what that, I wanted to know. That, that requires a a surface even deeper than that thousand bars, which then is able to because. Hydrothermal vents they're still living on a surface. It's a very different surface from what we live on, but it's still a surface.
2: Yeah, no, a, a, a model bottom slash surface was mentioned. A model bottom. Uh, several times. So there is assumed to be a, a, a surface on which life is existing here. Of course, this 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 gets a little complicated. As I mentioned, we've got the atmospheric evolution to consider, especially if there's a biosphere, potentially scooping up some of that hydrogen, turning it into methane. Life is very effective at, at modifying the atmosphere over time, polluting it with very biological waste products. And this would change the obviously, greenhouse effect and atmospheric loss processes if you're scooping up some of that hydrogen. So I think it would just change things a lot overall. Uh, and one thing that isn't touched on, or at least the authors do mention it, but uh, one big, uh, big big drawback I think is that this is just G dwarfs that we're looking at here. If we talk about hydrodynamic escape, uh, you know, from from uh, from planets, really looking at early M dwarfs or young M dwarfs that have that extremely high XUV would be pretty useful to look at because um, they're going to be really driving that hydrodynamic escape. So it's probably going to be very much. H- higher rates of hydrogen loss for those kind of worlds. Also, they do mention that you need a, a, just the right amount of water. I've called it a, go- a Goldilocks amount of water, even though I hate myself for saying that. Mm. So after loss, there still needs to be enough water to you know, keep the keep the temperature warm enough through collision-induced absorption, but not so much as to potentially inhibit some geophysical processes. We talked about this on the show before in the context of the Trappist planets. Maybe you can be... Too too saturated. Maybe there can be too much water to affect you know the tectonic evolution of the planet. It might change the hydration of the mantle too much. So that could be an issue. So overall, I'd be interested to see the uh, my co-hosts take on this paper. But uh, it's look, it's I thought it was a well-written paper and a strong first paper from a PhD student. Let's keep that in mind. But I think it falls into that that trap of being an interesting atmospheric modeling paper that then maybe had like some habitability angle. Um, Appended to it, maybe a little bit later on, or, or maybe even during view. Maybe that's not fair, and I apologise if that isn't. But I think it would have been an interesting paper without considering the the the, the, the habitability side of it, um, especially when if we do really want to do it properly, you need an interconnected biosphere, a degassing interior, which they do have, and an evolving atmosphere system that would that would almost certainly change all of these results beyond what's in the scope. And also, nothing really about observations, which I think would have been interesting mm. to tie in. Right, our observations and theory, theory debate, and certainly with in the context of, of recently uh, of recent news you know what is the utility of these predictions of these simulations can we test them and I'm, I'm not sure that was that well
0: covered I think that you know I don't disagree with you on your conclusions there i do think that the this has a place in theoretical understanding of different processes and the implications they might have in strange situations so how does that see the collision induced absorption affect different things that we might not have included in our models so thoroughly before i do think that the framing of it was to put it in a context that was more interesting i suppose yeah. to the authors perhaps um, Maybe to the editors. but it does mean i mean it limits it is
2: nature astro let's remember <laughs> yeah
0: i mean it, it vastly limits the application so i i'm not surprised given given the current technology given even jwst that they're not making observational predictions and I think this comes back to the debate we had in our previous episode is like where's the limit where's the timeline on this and and I think that this again is something that possibly has a much longer timeline and therefore does remain in the realm of theoretical for now but it did seem interesting to me that there's this mechanism that we know about that we fold into our models but perhaps we're not looking at the entirety of its feedback the way that it interacts or, or influences other processes as much as we should and I this is quite possibly something that is important but we just don't know so i think it really is a first look kind of thing
1: yeah i feel like it it's a shame that whenever the word habitable is in a paper mm. title it's more likely to get published and get press releases but it's less likely to be kind of
0: useful useful <laughs> no no
1: as in i think the, the the community is less likely to enjoy the paper in some ways right, if, it, okay. if, if the paper was about the temperature and pressure in many Neptune atmospheres as a function of age and as a function of, of you know, depths, that would be really useful. But as soon as you start, put, put the word habitable and, and talk about liquid water, it doesn't go down well. And I think, th- <laughs> I, I think you, you know, and also the fact that, okay, for example, they mentioned hydrothermal vents hydrothermal
2: vents exist actually that might not be entirely fair Hugh oh. I might have made that leap um, okay. when they were discussing you know chemo, ortho, uh, chemo communities I wanted to make an analogous you know a connection to something we yes, had here on sure. earth and I would have gone with hydrothermal vents but maybe that they didn't specifically mention but that. even chemo autotrophy requires some outgassing yes.
1: from the the, that's, the, that's the, the, the mantle that's right and so right. if you don't include any any the surface is just a, a, you know, like a plastic layer where nothing goes in, nothing goes out. Then, then you can't really talk about life because that's that's a really key thing in whether life. Could or the exist. key
0: that at those pressures you end up with very different kinds of materials. We've yeah. already, you know, we had on our, our show a, a fantastic discussion about what happens to ice under many many different conditions, and and we keep coming back to that. Well, I didn't
2: mention there was a quote that no ices were included. And that would obviously, you know, certainly complicate things uh, here with these yeah. high pressures uh, at the bottom of the surface layer. Here, I just want to go back very quickly. The interior model did include some outgassing. I, again, I don't want to misrepresent the paper. Ah, okay. But there was no, you know, the, the, the biosphere or the potential biosphere was not uh, self-consistently connected to that in any way. But there was some, Their interior model was 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 theoretically strong, right. you know, the modeling was, was okay. good. Absolutely.
0: But yeah, I think again, it's just the, it comes back to that debate yeah. of, you know, timelines when is this applicable and and how might we see advancements or knowledge being gained from this kind of investigation so yeah it's an interesting one it certainly sparked some debate so that's great and check out Exocast
2: uh, 61b for more discussion about observations and modelling
1: Exocast
2: let's go over to Hugh for his summary of his monthly paper of choice
1: Yeah, I mean, it's not quite a paper because, well, I I did find it looking through EDS for the last month, and then I remembered that there was this recent news, and I thought, this is perfect for exocast because um, there was a white paper on on the archive from the the Chinese ET mission, and this is one of the few times where it's almost unfortunate that ET doesn't mean extraterrestrial, because that (laughs) would actually make more sense, because ET in this context means Earth 2.0. That is the name of the mission that the Chinese space agency has proposed, which, I mean, I think. We have discussed many times how much we hate that moniker. Right? Yeah, but it's going to be attached to a mission. Well, they hope.
0: They hope. <laughs> um,
1: so this the white paper is typically the um, kind of
2: engineering and technical outline of a mission that is planned to launch. Yeah, that's a good point. They're not peer reviewed, for example, but they are written in technical no. language for usually you know the scientific community as opposed. Yeah. to they, they
0: are normally sponsored. Yeah. Yeah in terms of like signatory by a large number of members in the community so that in its essence is peer support yeah. i suppose rather than review That's a good way. yes
1: it, yeah. and of course they still are seeking approval i guess from from cnsa but it looks you know like they expect it to, to be to go ahead but i guess they would i'm not entirely sure how um, confident you know how how what the probability that they think of this mission going ahead is but at least the white paper sets it out as a as a real mission which is going to happen so E.T. Earth 2.0, I, I will just say E.T. because...
2: <laughs>
1: Save us all. So E.T. Is, is basically going to be a transit hunting mission in the, the same vein as TESS and Kepler, and also explores uh, plans to explore free-floating planets as well. And in terms of transit detection, what they're trying to do is do occurrence rates, study the formation evolution of planets, and find Earth-like planets around sun-like stars. And so the, the, form, the kind of form this, this telescope is gonna, is gonna take is to be six 30 centimeter telescopes, um, all of which are gonna point at the same field. And that, that field is probably going to be the Kepler field plus the regions around it because they're looking at a wider angle. And they're gonna have a, f- a seventh telescope which is looking elsewhere at the galactic center specifically for microlensing and free-floating planets and that sort of thing. Um, so it's kind of like a middle way in, in terms of the transit mission between Plato, which is 26 small telescopes, and Kepler, which is a single large mirror with a little bit of, of the Roman space telescope thrown in as well. So they're kind of, I'm not gonna say copying, but they're, they're following on from what NASA and, and ESA in some ways has done. So. One of the things that I found really interesting is that they have these 30 centimeter telescopes and what they're trying to do is basically scale up a TESS or a Plato like lensed camera, which are about eleven centimeters in both cases, to thirty centimeters. And this I find kind of crazy because, you know, if you're talking about three times the diameter, these are three lenses are three D objects. That's twenty-seven times the amount of glass. And the Plato lenses are already five kilograms. So we're talking about a single lens that is 150 kilograms potentially. And you'll lo- want to launch six of them. So I don't know, I quite know if they have the optical capabilities uh, to be able to create these lensed 30 centimeter lenses. This is way beyond anything that TESS or Plato have um, have kind of set out. So
2: Hugh, are these kill numbers, sorry to interrupt, that you, you've done yes. and back to the envelope? there's
1: no there? quote okay. on the mass in okay. in the in the in the white paper, but I just cannot see how yeah. they keep that mass down with so much so much like lens area maybe they, they have special techniques that we don't know about but but this is kind of one of the problems that I'll get to at the end is that China actually doesn't have that much engineering experience in terms of building space telescopes so they're not really building on proven technology right now they're making a big leap to a new thing which is far beyond what Europe and NASA have developed so that's going to be a tough you know a tall order but it would be, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it would be amazing if they can create it and launch this this space telescope, because of course it would find planets, yeah. Think ambitiously, and let, let's see if it works out. <laughs> Another f- part that I found extraordinary was the photometric precision they were aiming for. Um, so with this these six 30-centimeter uh, uh, apertures, the total collecting area would be about 0.42 meter squared, whereas Kepler was about 0.71 meter squared when you... You know add up the aperture the effective aperture effectively and so it means that the ET is going to collect less photons than Kepler about 42% less and yet they expect a, um, a precision more than double what Kepler was able to do for the same star so this to me doesn't make any sense I don't I don't quite understand how this is possible you know the Kepler photon noise is basically You know, their precision is based just on the number of photons they collect, and they collected more photons, or they will collect more photons than ET. So I'm not entirely sure how this is possible, but uh, one thing that the ET claims is that they'll have much, much lower readout noise, uh, which might boost the precision, but I mean, a factor of two over Kepler I just don't see that happening. And another another thing, interesting thing was their planetary yield statistics. So they set out how many planets they expect to find in, in a, a 3D graph. I'm not sure why it was 3D, it didn't mm-hmm. need to be. Um, <laughs> and they basically claimed that they would be able to find more than 10 times the number of planets that Kepler found. And it is true that it, ET will be observing much larger field of view. So somewhere between twice and five times the field of view of Kepler. So there is more sky that it will be covering but it's not observing 10 times more sky than Kepler so how can you get 10 times more planets with a less precise photometer if you're only observing 4 or 5 times more sky
0: and do you not have to rule out all of the ones that Kepler found as well yes. in that same field and so you're actually reducing the number of in, like unique what, planets you can find and
1: not just Kepler there's you know has found couple planets around the, the Kepler field as well so that yes there is a, a subtraction that has not been made in terms of those, those yield calculations I mean, there should be a
2: it's a couple of billion planets floating around there somewhere right? I mean
0: on on their 10 times it probably doesn't make much difference but yeah. if they're to get the equivalent of Kepler they're just going to measure the same planets again
1: Yeah and and I think another claim that they made was that they expect 10 to 10 to 20 earth 2.0s obviously they have named their telescope earth 2.0 so they will make sure that that's the one thing they need to get right if they name their telescope that and they don't get any there would be serious questions asked but <laughs> Kepler didn't find any, as far as, you know, Mm. arguably anyway. There there are some Earth-like planets, but they're not really confirmed.
0: And I assume Earth 2.0 here means a 1AU around a G-type star.
1: Yes, Uh, there's a box they drew around um, Earth-sized planets on Earth-like orbits. Will they not suffer the
0: same thing that Kepler did, that you've got an alias at one year because we are on an orbit of one year and it would be in low-Earth orbit or in some kind of orbit? So does this, it, does this kind it not of depends. Alias?
1: I mean, hopefully, what will happen is that the team will learn from Kepler's mistakes, and one of some of the things that Kepler saw was due to engineering decisions that were made early on mm-hmm. that then um, caused these one-year aliases because of thermal cycling and things that they didn't know before they launched. And now we do know that there are these issues, so that's one thing that I really hope happens is that there is some some information exchange from mm-hmm. the NASA team that knows these issues to, to the Chinese team. However, yeah. that information exchange Almost is illegal. Certainly yeah. never going happen. Actually, yep. It is illegal Actually under
2: US law. Illegal. As we've all worked for NASA, I'm sure we all know that we're not,
0: we have. We're not supposed yeah, to journey
2: there not- or travel there or talk to anyone there or discuss anything in any shape or form. So yeah. ideally for science, I couldn't agree more, Hugh, but in reality and yes. practicality, probably not.
1: ESA doesn't have such problems, and of course there is an ESA team which is further ahead in terms of Plato. Although, it's interesting to note that CNSA want to launch E.T. before Plato's launch in 2026. They expect to be able to launch in in under four years, which...
0: Again, with the mirrors, (laughs) you're sceptical.
1: I mean, yes. I think that the... I didn't... It must be said, I didn't read the full 40-page technical document. I, I went to the parts that I was familiar with, you know, yield calculations, I can do that, you know, the the engineering of the, of the, of the actual telescopes. I, I know a little bit about that and I found issues in those parts, at least. Um, so, you know, I, from, from reading those bits, I get the impression that CNSA is being a little bit naive in, in the white paper. As I said before, I think this is to be expected from an agency which doesn't have experience in building and running space telescopes, but they do have other missions on the pipeline. So they have a large, I think six meter space telescope planned, which is supposed to rival James Webb. But these things are future missions. So they haven't got the experience from building those missions just yet. So and here, you know, they're attempting to build a transit detector which is far more complex than anything we've built before in, in, in the Europe or in, in the US, especially those thirty centimeter lenses. So I really hope that they succeed. Because, you know, more transit photometry of the Kepler field would be amazing. We'd get longer period planets, we'd be able to confirm the, like, candidates which we currently have at one-year orbit with a different instrument. That would be great, that would be really useful. So I really hope they succeed, but I just don't expect it to fly as it is currently envisioned. Entirely possible that, you know, on a 10-year timeline, something with reduced size might fly, or a different configuration. And maybe even if they can do incremental developments... Launch a cubesat with one of these cameras, see how that works. You know, I think that would be probably a better timeline for China to get in the transit hunting game than going big, all of you know, going in big right, right at the start, and, and going for something that's complicated. So, so that's the, the Chinese ET mission. I'm sure there are people who, who know more about it than me, um, but that's my maybe naive reading of of Earth 2.0. What do you guys think?
0: I- think that they and i'm speaking in the most general terms here so i have absolutely no idea i am not an authority on any of this but it's it it is a go big or go home kind of attitude and it has not not succeeded in the past so i i really don't know um i've heard some people talk about it in many different aspects including astro seismology so measuring the pulsations of stars and and having using this mission to also do what kepler did so spectacularly which is understanding our stars more so there are a lot of science cases that it is trying to cover but i think that you know i think time time's going to tell on this i just do wonder whether or not the thought process has been there because there isn't this knowledge exchange and i would like to see internationally for not just this kind of mission, but for many, many other missions, much more knowledge exchange. And yeah. and that, I think, would push us much further forward than what we're seeing with lots of individual telescopes that have been going up from various nations as well. Yeah, that
2: makes me wonder about what the uh, kind of CNES proposal and commissioning process is, right? Maybe you need a really enigmatic case to even be considered for whatever panels they they may have and maybe you really do have to have to sell it big and then de-scope down down the line when you know technical limitations come in and again you know when it comes to the timeline uh, that's an accelerated timeline and on NASA scale on NASA timelines which some might say are slow some might say are appropriately long given the complexity (laughs) of things that we have to work with it just doesn't seem like four years as you say here would be it would be enough to overcome these technical issues.
0: I mean like you say I think that we don't know the process that it's gone through and it did remind me as you were kind of going through it and and i saw your 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 tweets on it when it first came out and stuff that it did remind me of a very early proposal for something like kepler or or something similar so it looks to me like a initial proposal for a discovery mission And, and what what that evolves to is often very very different um and yeah, I think, I think there's some time left on this. I don't believe the timeline, most of all, I think is, is exactly what you said as well. So I think we've got, this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about it, is, is the thing.
1: Well, if it launches, we're definitely going to be complaining about how they, they're they claiming these Earth 2.0 planets when they're actually mini-Neptunes. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: Mini-Neptunes. But then, to be All honest... All of them, mini-Neptunes across the galaxy. We'll
2: give them some space if, if they manage to pull this off in four years. I, I'll yes. give them some yeah. anyway. They can call it Earth 2.0 if they want.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, to, and, and, I mean, Kepler has already done that, and we've already complained about NASA exactly. spinning Kepler detections. Oh, directions. yeah. So yeah. So they wouldn't be the first if that happened. Definitely
0: not the first. <laughs> and with the uh, images and the spectra that we got last night and all of the press around JWST and everything, the first press release from the the White House was like, we're going to find these habitable planets. And I was just like
2: <laughs> yelling
0: at my computer <laughs> Uh, so I think we're going to have this struggle for many, many years to come.
2: Look forward to more many more interesting uh, and fruitful discussions here in the virtual studio.
1: <laughs> All right, well that was a you know a, a long unfortunately <laughs> but, but very interesting news session. Don't forget to look out for our other episode this month where we go through the relative merits of theory and op- observations in exoplanets. Uh, and let us know what you think about this show through our Twitter at exo or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous episodes as well. Feel free to support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com exocast. Each coffee is four bucks and then every donation over 15 will get you a shout out on the show. Uh, thanks so much to all of our previous donors. And you can get your hands on Exocast merch by going to exocast.threadless.com Andrew was sporting his mug earlier um, I've got my mask Oh, yeah, a mask Yes. Hannah has been mask. walking around advertising Exocast all That's week That's a fantastic great. advertising space there Hannah <laughs> It is <laughs> People looking directly at it when they're talking to you Thanks to Fergus Hall who edits Exocast and Exocast is available wherever you get your podcasts Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time Bye Bye Bye
0: Exocast You have been listening to Exocast The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPs test postdoctoral fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations Find out more at exocast.org Yes. Yeah.